Welcome to West Hills. It is a blessing to have each and every one of you with us this morning, um, but especially if you're new to West Hills, and I do see uh, quite a few new faces, actually, even in a smaller crowd. Um, it's wonderful to have you especially with us, and we'd love to connect with you and uh, get a record of your being here with us and get a chance to follow up with you. Thank you for being here. Give you a coffee mug for being here. Uh, ask you know what you're looking for in a church and how we might be able to serve you, partner with with you um, and God's work in your life to, to grow you up more into Christ. And my name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, I'd love to personally connect with you after the service as well. So I, I'll uh, be the one in the foyer down here trying to hunt you down and flag you down if you try and sneak out with it without saying good morning to me. So uh, children of the 90s, <clears throat> like myself, may remember the uh, short-lived environmentalist cartoon, Captain Planet, where the five planeteers with their respective superpowers, earth, fire, wind, water, heart, fought against evil villains trying to pollute the earth. But when the job got too big for them, their powers would combine to summon Captain Planet, the titular uh, blue superhero with his green mullet, who always managed to save the day. But at the end of each episode of Captain Planet, uh, he would, just before returning back to a different planet, I guess, we don't really know, it was never clear. It's a reason the show was only on for three seasons. But he would always leave us with the same message. The power is yours. Captain Planet would bestow his environmental superpowers back onto all of us, honorary planeteers. Well, as we opened our sermon series for this year together in the book of Acts, the resurrected Jesus had appeared to his disciples for 40 days on earth before ascending back into heaven, and just before he did, he left them with these words in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The power is yours. And this morning, Jesus will make good on that promise to fill them with the power of his spirit for the sake of their global witness in one of the most important, pivotal moments in the history of the church. Indeed, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where we're going to be camping out this morning, the story of Pentecost marks the very beginning, the birth of Jesus' church. And yet, as we're going to see, the story is not only about the apostles being filled with the Spirit, it's also about the Scriptures being fulfilled by that filling with the Spirit. To be sure, the most important headline of Acts chapter 2 is that God fills his church with his Spirit to spread his gospel. That's that's the, the main idea, big point. But as we're going to see, this story is even richer than that because it has all sorts of implications, not only for the church 2,000 years ago, but for Jesus' church still today. Specifically, I want to highlight four implications of this story for us today. Remember, we are not just here studying on Sunday mornings for historical information. We're here for heart transformation. What did it mean for them and why does it still matter to us today that God fills his followers with his spirit? 
Let me give you four answers to that question. So would you stand with me, uh, once again, as you're able, for the reading of God's word? As I said, from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, if you don't have a Bible where you can follow along or an Acts uh, scripture journal that you can take notes in, we'd love to give you some of those at the info bar. Hear the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, for these supernatural, miraculous, once-in-a-lifetime birth of the church events that it records for us, remembers for us, that we can read and just be awestruck and inspired by and celebratory and praise you for what you did at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. Father, we, we praise you and we thank you this morning, not only for your word, but for your spirit, that the same spirit that filled the apostles and the 120 in the upper room 2,000 years ago lives inside the heart of every true believer in Jesus this morning. God, we, we come this morning realizing, recognizing, confessing that all too often we quench the Spirit. We have the Spirit and dwelling in our hearts. We don't live by the Spirit. We don't walk by the Spirit. We're not aware of your Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts and our lives. And so this morning, I pray by the power of your word and your spirit, would you make us more aware of who you are and of what you're doing, not only in our individual personal lives, but in the world and what you want to do in the world through us, your, your great mission, redemption of the world. And Father, if there's anyone this morning here who does not have the power of your spirit alive at work in their heart this morning. We pray that you would do that filling baptism of the Holy Spirit work again in the heart of an unbeliever through the power of your word and your spirit to call them to yourself. 
give them new, new life in Christ. I pray this by the Spirit in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Four implications this story has, both for the early church 2,000 years ago as well as for us today. Number one, the filling of Jesus' followers by his Spirit fulfilled the meaning of Pentecost. In verse 1, we read, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, or the Festival of the Harvest, was an annual Jewish holiday instituted by God himself in the Old Testament, Exodus 34. It was one of three pilgrimage holidays on which God instructed his people to actually travel to Jerusalem to worship him in the temple in person. The word Pentecost means 50th because it was celebrated 50 days after Passover. And the original Old Testament purpose of this festival was to offer one's first fruits of the spring harvest back to God. It was a reminder to God's people that the only reason there was a harvest in the first place it's because God was creator, God was faithful, sustainer, provider. He had provided another year's worth of crops for them. But it's not until the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 that we realize this Old Testament celebration of Pentecost was but a shadow, a mere taste of the true fulfillment and meaning of Pentecost that was to come when we would one day celebrate a far greater and eternally greater harvest and the first fruits of that harvest at Pentecost. The Apostle Paul rejoiced in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And Paul calls him the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, you and I can have a hope this morning that transcends the grave, transcends this life on earth because Jesus Christ transcended his grave, he didn't stay dead, that after Jesus was put to death on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day to defeat the power of sin and hell and death, and now all who trust in him and are filled with his spirit, the same spirit and power that brought Jesus back to life from the dead now lives inside you if you trust in Jesus by faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. And elsewhere in Romans 8, Paul anticipates that the whole creation has been groaning. And we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, God is making all things new. All of creation will one day be redeemed through the power of God's Spirit. But those who are in Christ, who have been adopted to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, we are the first fruits of that glorious recreation, redemption. So, while Pentecost in the Old Testament celebrated God's recreation, God's 
uh, a creation of another year's worth of crops. Pentecost here in Acts 2. And for the rest of church history, we'll celebrate God's recreation of our spirits. God is now reaping a soul harvest. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. These 120 believers in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, they are the very first new creations in Christ. And by the end of chapter 2, next week, we're going to see the harvest has already exploded to include another 3,000 souls. But that's not all. I feel like QVC commercial. Wait, there's more. Kent Hughes explains that by the time of Christ, Pentecost was also considered the anniversary of God's giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, which also occurred in the book of Exodus about 50 days after the very first Passover when God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt. Why is that significant? Hughes explains, it provided then a perfect opportunity to contrast the giving of the law with the giving of the Spirit. Not only did Pentecost commemorate God's provision of the wheat harvest, it also celebrated God's provision of the law, the Torah. So not only does Acts 2 mark the ingathering of a better harvest, a soul harvest, souls are better than wheat, it also marks the arrival of a better gift as well. God's law in the Old Testament, it was a good gift to his people. King David rightly rejoiced in Psalm 119 that God's law was sweeter than honey, more precious than much fine gold. But as wonderful as God's gift of the law was, the gift of his own spirit in the New Testament is on a whole nother level. Romans 8, the spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Remember Romans 3, last week we said, the, the law is a mirror to show us our need for a savior. So the law brings with it sin and death, guilt, that we didn't keep the law. He says, the spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the spirit. Translation, law, good, spirit, better infinitely, eternally better. So, what does this mean for you and me today? Well, if God's Old Testament people thought it was worth throwing a massive party every year to commemorate his provision of some crops and the law, how much more so ought we today to celebrate God's provision of a better harvest our souls and God's gift of not just the law. Here's how you ought to live. That's good. God offers us guidance in his law. But, but in his gift of the spirit, God says, now I'm actually going to make it possible for you to experience life to the fullest to the extent that you are filled with and walk by my spirit. Brothers and sisters, because the meaning of Pentecost has been fulfilled, we 
should celebrate. We can have great joy today. Number two, God's gift of the Spirit not only filled the apostles, but it fulfilled his promise of power to them. God's promise of power. Remember what Jesus had promised his apostles in chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What kind of power? Well, two kinds. Two kinds of power we see here in these first four verses of Acts 2. The first is a visible, external, unrepeatable power. The other is an invisible, internal, but universal power. Let me unpack those. First, the Spirit's filling of the apostles was accompanied by the externally visible but unrepeatable power of the Word. Verses 3 and 4 here. Divided tongues appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages, tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit gave them words. Now, this was not the same speaking in tongues, glossolalia, that the Apostle Paul would describe for us later in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul describes a believer being filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of worshiping God in an angelic language which is to be accompanied by an interpreter such that the entire church might be edified. That is a repeatable spiritual gift still experienced by the church after Pentecost. But here in Acts 2, this group of 120 are uniquely filled with the Spirit in order to speak in human tongues, human languages, with no need for interpreters, because they are proclaiming the gospel in Parthian, in Persian, in Phrygian, in Egyptian, in every other various language represented by these people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Not so much for the purpose of worship as it was for global evangelism. This event is totally unique in the history of the church. <clears throat> When we send out international missionaries today, we don't tell them to pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit so they can preach the gospel in Japanese or Wolof or Arabic. We send them to language training first. Because Pentecost was a one-time event, a miracle of the Spirit for the founding of the church based on the proclamation of God's word. We could trace this theme of the power of the word all throughout scripture in the beginning was the word jesus christ was and is god's word god created all things by the power of his word god said let there be and there was by his word god called abram he called a people unto himself and then god spoke to them and spoke his law to them the words of life the torah that they were supposed to follow and even when they didn't what did God do? He spoke to and through prophets. Thus saith the Lord, in order to call his people back to obedience. It's the power of his word. But when they refused to listen, God sent Jesus, the word made flesh, to dwell among us. And now God calls all people everywhere to follow him through the proclamation of 
his gospel, the good news, the entire Christian faith centers on a message, an announcement. It's a word that Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and King. The gospel isn't a way of life. It's not something you do. You don't live out. The, it's, a, it's a message. It's a word you announce. Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and King. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. And he rose from the dead to give us new eternal life in his name. That, that is the mighty works of God that these foreign pilgrims heard the apostles proclaiming in their own native mother tongues in Acts 2.11. It is the word of the gospel. Pentecost was the perfect inversion then of the story of Babel. If you remember, you were here with us for our study through the book of Genesis last year. You remember Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. At Babel, God confused Babel confused the language of a rebellious people in order to thwart their destructive purposes and disperse humanity over all the face of the globe. Think about that. At Pentecost, God empowered the language of his obedient people in order to accomplish his own glorious purpose of global witness by uniting people from all over the world around the message of the gospel. Pentecost inverts the story of Babel by giving the apostles this miraculous, conspicuous, one-time gift of the power of word, speech, language. But secondly, the second power God also filled them with was the invisible, internal, repeatable power of life. Power of word, power of life. What is the significance here in verse 2 of the sound like a mighty rushing wind? Well, in both the Old Testament Hebrew language, ruach, and in the New Testament Koine Greek, pneuma, the exact same word used for spirit can also mean wind or breath. So think about that for a minute. What is wind or breath or a person's spirit in biblical terms ruach numa they refer to the animating power of life it's the, the power of life wind proves that creation is alive it rustles the leaves it, it conjures the waves breath is the evidence that a body is alive how do you know when a person or an animal dies Stop breathing, right? And the Spirit, in the same way, gives life to all things. Think back again to Genesis. What was the Holy Spirit doing in creation? Genesis 1 2 says, When the, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, then the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The earth was lifeless until God's animating spirit went to work, brought it to life. There's this powerful story in the Old Testament where God gives the prophet Ezekiel a vision of what his people Israel have become like. In their rejection of God's word and God's spirit, they 
have become like a valley of dry bones. But God takes Ezekiel to that valley and God tells him to speak, to preach God's word to the bones. And God says, behold, I will cause breath, ruach, spirit to enter into these bones and they shall live. And that's exactly what happens supernaturally in Ezekiel's vision. But then God prophecies about a future time when he says, Behold, I will raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And friends, Acts chapter 2, in the miracle of Pentecost, was the fulfillment of that promise. For the first time in history, God put his spirit in his people, and he raised them to new, eternal, resurrected life in Christ. In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That unless you've been born once by water, physically when your mother's water broke, but then a second time spiritually born of the Spirit when you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you were saved, Romans 10, and you were at that very moment, Ephesians 1, sealed with the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of your inheritance of eternal life. That unless you've been born again, that all-important second time, you cannot enter the kingdom of God can't get into heaven. And then Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind, the pneuma, blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma, the spirit. Well, the 120 apostles and earliest followers of Jesus in the upper room at Pentecost. They sure heard the sound of the pneuma on that day. Any of y'all survived a tornado here in Missouri? Get a lot of tornadoes. They say you know a tornado is getting close when the wind gets so loud it starts to sound like a freight train, right? That's what the apostles heard here in Acts chapter 2. Why? Why'd they hear a freight train, a tornado? Why didn't they hear the sound of a gentle summer breeze? Because God was filling them with his life-giving power so that they could share it with all boldness. Look, if the Spirit had come like a gentle breeze, the apostles might have calmly stepped outside the upper room and stated in a very tra tranquil voice, <clears throat> excuse us, could we, could we have your attention please? Um, we think you should know that Jesus is risen and you should really repent of your sins and you should, you should trust in him, give your life to him. But when the spirit descends like a freight train, you bust down the door to get outside as quickly as you can and you shout, Jesus is risen. Repent and believe. I won't do my rendition of that in Latin and 
Greek and all the other languages they spoke for you. What does this mean for us today, friends? The supernatural power of the word that God gave them to speak in foreign tongues, that may have been a unique, unrepeatable gift. Like the the moment that you came to saving faith in Jesus, you may not have heard a tornado or seen tongues of fire or spoken in a foreign language, but the invisible, internal, yet even greater power of life that God bestows on us through his spirit, that better not be a singular, unique event, or else you and I and every other believer in the history of the church since the first century, we are still dead in our sins. Friends, do we realize that we, too, have received God's very own power of life over death. And because we have, much like these first century apostles, we ought to be bold to revel in that glorious truth. We ought to have boldness in the way that we live and love and worship and witness for Christ. A few years ago, for my dad's 65th birthday, and uh, retirement party. We rented him a Ferrari for the day, one of his dreams. I think I've got a couple pictures for you there. It's Ellery behind the wheel, <clears throat> baby Ellery. Now, can you imagine if we had spent all that money, rented this Ferrari, and my dad had spent the entire day with his foot on the brake, just bare, barely idling, in circles, driving nice little circles around the parking lot at Schnucks. That would be absurd. Why? Because when you've got 500 horses under the hood, you don't idle around the parking lot. Right? 2 Corinthians 3. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. God has made us ministers of a new covenant of the Spirit, for the Spirit gives life. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, that's a real question for us this morning. Are we very bold? Are we boldly ministering in the power of the Spirit, or are we just idling around the parking lot? do we realize that we've got 500 horses under the hood? Life-to-death kind of power indwelling us. And God put it there, God put his spirit there to fill us with all boldness and power to minister to those who are still trapped in darkness. Number three, by filling us with his spirit, God fulfilled his promise of presence. God's promise of presence with his people. We've covered the wind in in verse 2. Wind is the power of life. Covered the tongues in verse 4. Tongues are the power of the word. What about the fire in verse 3? Fire. Specifically, we read, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Why fire? 
Kent Hughes explains, throughout the Bible, fire is a symbol of God's presence. Beginning with Moses and the burning bush, remember that story, Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared to Moses as fire and called him to go set his people, the Israelites, free. And Moses asked, why would they listen to me? God replies, don't worry, they're going to listen to me because I'm going to be with you, my presence. Then once they're set free, you remember how God led the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years. He appeared to them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When God, along the way, delivered the law to Moses atop Mount Sinai, something Pentecost celebrated in the first century, the mountain, we hear, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, Exodus 19. When Solomon built the temple to house God's presence, do you remember what happened at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7? We hear as soon as Solomon finished his prayer of dedication, fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Actually, Kent Hughes is wrong because God's presence as fire didn't begin with Moses in Exodus chapter 3, it actually began with Abram all the way back in Genesis 15. If you think back again to Genesis, when God made his covenant with Abram, how did God visibly confirm it to him? God told Abram to cut a bunch of animals in half, and then God himself passed through the blood trail as a sign of how serious his commitment to Abram was. But he did it in the form of of a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. Time and time again throughout Scripture, God visibly manifesting his presence in the form of fire. Hebrews 12, 29 goes so far as to say that our God is a consuming fire. But there's something new happening here at Pentecost. We read that divided tongues as a fire rested on each one of them. Hughes explains the spirit now rests upon each believer individually. The emphasis from Pentecost onward is on the personal relationship of God to the believer through the Holy Spirit. So just as God's presence had once filled the temple in the form of fire, now the New Testament informs us that each individual believer's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. All the way back in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist had prophesied that the Messiah would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So, what does all of this mean for you and me today? Well, it means two things. One of two things. Either... If you are not baptized with the Holy Spirit, if you are not born again, if you are not in Christ this morning, if you are still living in sinful rebellion against a holy, perfect, just God, then I have to warn you this morning that God's being a consuming fire is not good news for you. That the same gracious God who appeared as a firepot to make a good promise to Abram also is the just God who appeared as fire and brimstone a few chapters later to his wayward nephew Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. The same gracious God who appeared as a pillar of fire to lovingly lead and guide the Israelites through the wilderness is also the just God who scorched Nadab and Abihu 
the sons of Aaron, the priest, God consumed them with fire for making an unauthorized offering on the altar to him. God doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament either. The same gracious God who bestows his presence on his people at the temple, the new temple of our hearts when we trust in Christ is also the just God of 2 Thessalonians 1.8 who says he's sending Jesus back one day to execute justice on all those who refuse to believe. Surrender to him in faith. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The same gracious God who purifies his own people with the refiner's fire until we are fully sanctified, fully made holy like Jesus is also the just God who will one day cast every rebel who rejects Jesus into the lake of fire, into hell forever. In short, if you are not in Christ, God's fiery presence will one day mean your utter destruction. But for all who are in Christ, baptized in the spirit and with fire, God's presence for you means your peace. It's one or the other. It's either terror or it's utter peace. Consider what that image of fire would have meant to someone in ancient biblical times. Without fire, you couldn't cook your meat from the hunt, be susceptible to all kinds of diseases. Without fire, you'd freeze to death on a cold night. Without fire on a cloudy night outside of town, you'd be left in the pitch black, completely vulnerable and exposed. But fire lights the way. Fire keeps the animals away. Fire can keep you warm. Fire can feed you. Many anthropologists consider fire to be the most important invention or discovery in our history as a human species. A fire can bring you peace, peace of mind, if you know what to do with it. Do you know what to do with God? The consuming fire. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I go, I will send the helper to you, the Holy Spirit, and in me you will have peace. God's Spirit brings us peace. The presence of Jesus' indwelling spirit offers you true abiding peace this morning, if you will but receive it. Lastly, number four, in God's filling us with his spirit, our purpose is fulfilled. Our purpose. In verses five through 11, we read, now there were Dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, it was either the sound of the mighty rushing wind from verse 2 or the sound of the gospel in 120 different languages or both of them. Verse 6 isn't clear. But in any case, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear each one in his own native language? Remember John chapter 1 when Philip told his buddy Nathaniel that he had found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what Nathaniel's reply was? He said, Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? From Galilee? Galileans were hicks. They were rednecks, Hoosiers. Even their accent apparently gave them away immediately. You know, they just sounded like such uneducated. You couldn't, you couldn't even imagine someone from Galilee having half a brain, much less speaking in perfect fluent Latin or Persian or Egyptian, Arabic, Cappadocian, every other language represented by this crowd. I'm out of time, quickly. What's the point? From the beginning of humankind, God's whole purpose in creating us as his image bearers was that we might reflect his glory to the ends of the earth. It's God's very first command in scripture, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with little reflections of my glory. But we sinned. And so God chose just one man, Abram, through whom God would consecrate for himself a people so he could send them out to be a blessing to all nations, Genesis 12. But they sinned. So God sent another man. He sent his own son, through whom he would bless all the nations. And that blessing, the blessing of the nations, Jesus said he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When Jesus was here on earth, kind of like Abraham was supposed to, start with this, this people that would then take it out to the nations. Jesus started with 12 and 70, 120, but they were all Jews. Before Pentecost, Christianity was a tiny fringe sect of Judaism, all 120 of them in the upper room were Jews. But at Pentecost, God made it clear that the scope of his purpose for his people within his overarching redemptive plan is worldwide. God's great commission is to make disciples of all nations, all ethne, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, until every nation, tribe, and tongue has heard the good news of Jesus. That's our purpose, to make Jesus famous in all the earth. And so your final application point then for today is, if the consummation of Pentecost ought to bring us joy, if the spirit of power ought to fill us with boldness, if God's indwelling presence ought to fill us with peace, then finally, God's purpose for our lives to make him famous, Jesus, and all the ends of the earth, that ought to fill us with urgency. It truly is a massive mission. 10,035 ethnes, nations, people groups that have heard the good news of Jesus, praise God. But that still leaves 7,398 to go. 7,398 people groups, over 40% of the world's population who still haven't heard the gospel. May we be filled, church, with urgency for the purpose to which our Lord has called us, his worldwide rescue mission to seek and save.
the lost. Amen.